Acts chapter 2. Come on in, welcome. Oh, great to see you again. God bless you. Acts chapter 2. Let's turn there together and, and uh, let's just pray once again for this class and time. Father, we thank you tonight that on this Wednesday night we can have your word open and our hearts looking to you by faith tonight and your spirit in us to quicken us and teach us and, and uh, bless us, God. Give us understanding and faith and just a leading in our lives, Lord, we pray. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, uh, which is really all we got to last week, was when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And hopefully there's a little bit of a background that we have now when we think about the day of Pentecost. Um, Remember, Pentecost was one of the seven feasts. Uh, There were seven feasts on the um, calendar, the Jewish calendar. Um, There were the spring feasts, and the autumn or the fall feasts. Um, And they were divided into three different journeys. Um, I think it was something, if you were within 20 miles of Jerusalem or something, you, you, you were obligated as a Jewish man to come and attend the feast three times a year, those pilgrimages. And the first was called uh, the Passover. Oh, sorry, let's go back a bit. Yeah. First is called the Passover, which included these three. That was in the month Nisan, which is about March for us. The second pilgrimage was Pentecost in the month Sivan, which is about May for us. And then the last, the fall feasts around September or something like that in the Jewish month of Tishrei. So there were three journeys to Jerusalem each year, one for the for the Passover journey, which included these three feasts over three days, one for the Pentecost journey, for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, first fruits represented the, the beginning of the harvest, particularly the beginning of the barley harvest, and Pentecost was when they celebrated the end of the harvest, the winter harvest, the wheat was, was brought in. Um, and then the last journey was the tabernacle. So when we read these words, sorry, Pointing to the wrong place again. Pentecost. Um, a few a few things to mention, but about the feast of um, about the feast of Pentecost. Sometimes it's called the feast of weeks, the feast of harvest, or the feast of ingathering. They're just different uh, names for the same feast in the Old Testament. And here, the first fruits of the winter were gathered and offered to God. Uh, this feast, Pente, comes from the word. 50. It was 50 days after the Passover. Um, it's called the Feast of Weeks because there are seven weeks to 49, and then the 50th day was the Feast of Pentecost. And this um, is looking to when the rest of the harvest was gathered in. So think about it for a moment. If we consider these feasts, these ones prophetically um, at this point were fulfilled already. Jesus died on the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul actually says, Christ our Passover. He was buried, of course, the next day on the, for the unleavened bread um, as the bread from heaven. And then on first fruits, uh, which represented the resurrection, of course, was on the third day. So not only did he fulfill the feasts in type and anti-type, but he actually fulfilled them on the day that they were observed on the calendar. Incredible to think of that. And um, with the first fruits, what would happen is at the beginning of harvest, they would sow the seeds in the fields, and traditionally three of the men of the Sanhedrin would go out to three fields. They would put a little ring down in the fields, wait for the harvest to grow up, and then they would harvest the, what would be called the first fruits of that harvest, whatever grew up in that ring. They would gather it together to one sheave, and there would be a ceremonial march up to the temple. The priests would go into the temple and wave that sheave offering as, a, as an offering, a first fruits thanks offering for, for the harvest. 
And of course, when Christ rose from the grave, again, if we look to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul specifically says, Christ, our first fruits. I think it's verse 20 or 21. And Paul, in saying that, he also mentions the unleavened bread in Corinthians as well. All those three feasts mentioned to the Corinthians, and he was saying to them, Christ fulfilled the feast. If you like, although Christ was afterwards, the feasts were a shadow of that which was to come. Colossians 2.17, we mentioned last week. So incredible to think of that, that these feasts on the calendar, written by Moses 1,500 years before the time, were just a, a pre, precursor, a shadow, a prophetic um, uh, symbol waiting for Christ to actually fulfill it. The, uh, the fall feasts are yet, we could, you could say that on the timeline, on the prophetical timeline, we're waiting in between. We are in the church age, represented uh, by Pentecost, and we're waiting for the first trumpet of the first feast. Um, that's not our subject tonight. Some distinctions between the offerings that were made in the first fruits feast and then at Pentecost. Um, first of all, we mentioned first fruits represents the barley harvest, Pentecost the wheat. Um, first fruits, there was one sheaf that was offered. But the meal offering for Pentecost was two loaves. We'll speak about that in a minute. Also, first fruits was unleavened bread, and Pentecost was the only time that it was specifically said they had to use leavened bread. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a minute. This represented the beginning of the harvest and this looking to the completion of the harvest. So, again, first fruits. One sheaf represented the whole harvest that would come. Christ, who was the first fruits? Christ was the first fruits. He was the first fruits of what? The resurrection. And that initial first fruits offering represented the rest of the harvest to come. In other words, Christ was the first fruit of the resurrection, and we will follow in that, in that same resurrection as, as taught in 1 Corinthians 15. And at Pentecost, it was two loaves. And there's a few, few things we could say about that. Um, these were not individual grains, but baked into a loaf. This speaks of the body of Christ. Uh, there were grains that were needed. There were fire for the, for, the, for the grains to be ground and then cooked, baked into the loaf. And there was oil. Grains, oil, and fire. You find all of those in Acts chapter 2. The fire, the oil, the Holy Spirit, and the individual grains waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they will be baked into the loaf. They will become the body of Christ. Then it says there are two loaves. Interesting that there are two loaves. And there's some speculation on that. Um, I like to think that it prefigures the fact that there will be two major outpourings of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 2 to the Jews and Acts 10 to the Gentiles. However, the two loaves were offered as one offering because, of course, in the body there is no Jew and Gentile or Jew and Gentile alike in one body. So two loaves, the two outpouring, but one offering, one body. So this is at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, why was it waiting for this day? Why was it waiting for the day of Pentecost to fully come? Because the Feast of Pentecost prefigured or was waiting for the prophetic fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The three previous feasts were fulfilled with the death, burial, and resurrection. And this one now fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. Uh, Rabbis believe that the law was given at the first Pentecost. And you remember what happened on that day. 3,000 died. But at Acts 2 Pentecost, 3,000 are saved. We'll see that in this, in this chapter. That's a beautiful distinction between law and grace, life, death, and life. So, in Acts 2, chapter 1, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Beautiful. They are told to wait. Uh, we already saw in chapter 1, one thing they did in that 10 days of waiting was that they prayed together, they fasted together, they waited, they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father had given them, and also they chose the 12th Apostle Matthias in, during that time. 
and they are waiting with one accord in one place, and then suddenly, verse 2, they are waiting, and then suddenly came a sound from heaven as rushing mighty wind filled the whole house where they were sitting. They were waiting, and then suddenly there was a phenomena that accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wind, the sound of wind, and the visual, as far as we can tell, the visual, um, uh, they could physically see tongues like fire that uh, was on each one of them. So each one that was present, it wasn't left to their own inner intuition or something, but there was, a, there was all could see, all could know, all could hear that there was something very significant that was happening that was not natural but supernatural. Um, the word pneuma for spirit is often translated wind. There's a connection between the two. John 4, Jesus said, the wind blows where it will and so it is with the spirit. So they were all made very aware in that moment that something was happening and it was the promise of the Holy Spirit was now come. We will see in the book of Acts there are over 40 references to the Holy Spirit connected to the deacons, to Philip, to Peter when he preaches, to the choosing of uh, um, Paul and Barnabas and on and on. The Holy Spirit is key in the work of the church. And then verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And we love these words, on each of them. There was none that was left out. All that were waiting, um, all that were gathered waiting in faith, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And think of this. These were the believers. They're numbered as 120 at the time. 120 of them waiting. The Holy Spirit comes And this moment is the birth of the church. When we want to think about the birthday of the church, it's Acts 2-4 here. It's the the birthday of the church, the beginning of the church. And um, it's kind of like when Adam was created and then the Lord breathed into him and he became a living soul. Or in um, Ezekiel 37, remember the prophecy of the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones? And when, the, when Ezekiel began to prophesy, the bones came together. And then the final part was the breathing in of life. Um, it, that's kind of like what's pictured here. They're waiting, they're believing, but they are, they are not made one living organism, drinking of the same spirit, sharing the same life until this moment. This is a new era. We call it the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And this was when when it began. In Psalm 133, um, we remember uh, the psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And to give an incredible picture of that unity, he says it is like the oil, the anointing oil that is poured on the head of Aaron, the high priest, and would run down the head, down the beard, down the garments to the skirts of the garments, down the head to the body. And that's what happened at Pentecost. Jesus is the ascended head in Colossians 1.18. We are now the body. And at Pentecost, so to speak, the oil was poured on the head and ran down, and it was the, it was the beginning of his body from that, from that moment. All were filled in verse 4. All were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's obviously a distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Both are in view here. All were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and all were certainly filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus predicted that this would be a baptism, and Luke here mentions in this verse that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are baptized once at the point of salvation. Um, you are only baptized once into the body, never needs to be repeated. But filling, of course, we are told, uh, Ephesians 5.18, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a repeated action um, through a yielded believer who is trusting the Lord. So at baptism, a person is united with the body of Christ once and for all, and filling is when the Holy Spirit is, uh, is, 
is free in us to lead us, to teach us, to convict us, etc., and all the different uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit. And the second part of the verse says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or gave them the ability is the idea. And the word here for tongues is the word languages. It's referring to known languages. There is nowhere here that indicates it was some unknown or unintelligible or angelic tongue. It's very clear in the Greek and definitely in the context of Acts 2, it's referring to a known language. Definitely a God-given ability. It was was a gift of the Spirit, which was evidenced here in Acts 2, but it it was the speaking of known languages. Perhaps they then heard the praise and the works of God in their own language, and certainly the stage was set for Peter to then preach and explain what was happening. Primarily, this was a sign for the Jews. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.22. The Jews require a sign, and this was certainly a very powerful sign that the Holy Spirit had certainly come, as the Father had promised. And tongues here, this is... um, our Greek word for it. Uh, Tongues means languages, not an incomprehensible phenomenon. Um, Several scriptures that speak of people's tribes, nations, and languages of the world. For example, Revelation 5.9, or where it's translated tongues, speaking of people of different languages, um, is is in view there. In Acts 2 and other places, it's translated language. Its meaning is obvious in these passages. Okay, Luke 2, uh, sorry, Acts 2 verse 5 says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this is important. They're speaking in known languages. And then it says that there were people, Jews, from every nation in heaven, under heaven, sorry. I'm not, my head's a bit clogged. Um, And, of course, because of the feast, there were thousands and thousands of people. Some had even stayed after the feast of Passover and on. But if not, they had come back to celebrate the feast, um, to observe the feast. So it was full of people from the known world. These were not Gentiles, but these were Jews. It's estimated that perhaps the first million believers uh, were Jewish believers until the Gentiles were reached in Acts chapter 10. But these were Jews. They would have spoken Aramaic and Greek and, of course, Hebrew and other languages that they would have learned depending on where they were living in the known world at that time. And they heard the native tongue from whichever land they came from, Gentile languages through uh, Jewish lips. They heard a known, spoken language. And verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were amazed and marveled, saying one to another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Again, the context and the wording could not be any more crystal clear in the English language than this that the tongues spoken of in Acts 2 are known languages. We hear our own language in which we were born. In no way can you find the liberty, although people do, to to force the charismatic unknown unknown language of today's movements into Acts 2. It is just not there. If you really go by the language and the context, this is definitely known languages that are referred to. Um, that's important to remember. So in 2.7, they were all amazed. And this, of course, was the desired effect. The Jews sought a sign, needed a sign. Um, When they were gathered, there was the sound of wind, there was the visual uh, uh, tongues of fire, and then there was this incredible phenomenon that all were amazed at what happened. They were hearing... Uh, the works of God declared by these Galileans, uneducated men. How would they know my language? It was obviously a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is verse 7. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Again, clearly something supernatural was happening. And verse 8, how is it we hear in our own language or own dialect is another way of translating that. So we have listed in the book of Acts all of the places, and it's named in Acts 1 and 2, all of the places that the people were gathered from. And they had all come, even from as far as Rome, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, here it says, and there were certain strangers from Rome. A little footnote on that is that we don't actually know for sure how the, the church in Rome was started. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he'd never been there, although he desired to. And it's not clear how the church in Rome started. Could be, though, speculation could be that in Acts 2.10, it says strangers from Rome, these were Jews that traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, got saved here. They were among the 3,000. They got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then returned to Rome, and that's how the church started. Would would make a lot of sense. Um, And then verses 9, 10, and 11, um, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes to great pains to lay out all of the places where the people were from. Again, in the context of the known languages that were spoken here, people hearing the praises of God in their own language, and he goes on to say Parthians, Medes, Elamites, etc. Um, there's the visitors of Rome in verse 10, uh, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So, Here's a question. Are the tongues or languages that are mentioned here in Acts the same as the tongues that Paul is referring to in Corinth or in 1 Corinthians 14 particularly? Um, I know for perhaps some here or listening to this recording, this can be a little bit of a sensitive subject based on your background as believers. I'm only going with my leaning. You can develop your own conviction on it but this is mine, Um, that um, the same terminology, tongues, the same Greek word, is used by Luke and by Paul. They were companions. They knew each other. They spent hours and hours, in fact, years traveling together on the missionary journeys. They would have been very familiar with each other's Um, vocabulary and and explanation of things. Remember, when they traveled on the missionary journeys, that was years after Acts 2. So there's no reason to believe that when Luke is speaking of languages, using this Greek word, that Paul would suddenly use the word in 1 Corinthians 14 and be speaking about something completely different. I believe that he's speaking about the same thing, using it in the same sense. I believe both refer to the gift, the spiritual gift of speaking in unknown, uh, uh, sorry, not unknown, in known uh, languages. The gift, of course, would have been key for spreading the gospel, especially evangelizing the Jews in the early church. Um, And in, in your translation, I don't know which you use, but I know in the King James, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says the word unknown tongue, which is added by the translators in italics. It's not known there, it's just... The word is glossa or languages. There is a practice of unknown tongues, but is it biblical? Is it, is it a gift of the Holy Spirit? What is practiced in the charismatic churches today of speaking an unknown language? Uh, is that a gift of the Holy Spirit? I will leave that for you to, to come to your conviction. But I personally see the gift of known languages referred to here in Acts 2 and also what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 14. You develop your own conviction on that. Verse two, uh, 12. So they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others mocked, saying they are full of new wine. And this was one of the main purposes, of course, of this event, to get the people's full attention And now Peter is going to preach and explain. He's going to answer this question. What does this mean? You will come up with your your explanation of it. Let me tell you exactly what's happening. And that's what uh, Peter sets out to do. Verse uh, 
14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. because There was a lot of noise. He had to get their attention. Raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So Peter stands up to address the situation. The the stage is set for him to share, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word, and he begins to speak. He certainly has something to say. This is the first recorded sermon after Pentecost, um, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the fisherman of Luke 5. This is the Peter all through the Gospels who's continually stumbling and tripping and putting his foot in it. Uh, but now he, he, he has something uh, to say by the Holy Spirit beautifully. He's ready to, to answer their question. He says, um, it's only the third hour of the day. By the way, the third hour being about nine in the morning for the, from 6 a.m. was when it began. So the third hour was about nine in the morning. And he's saying... It's too early, certainly on the Sabbath or any other feast. No Jew who would be observing the law would be partaking of of wine uh, in the morning like that. So that's what he says. Um, It's only the third hour of the day. So he sets out with his his message. And in fact, there are three divisions for it. You can see where each part begins because there's a new address each time. Uh, In verse 14, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then the next one, men of Israel. And the next one, brethren. Each one uh, indicates a a certain emphasis in his message. And also, each one he uses a different Old Testament passage to say what he wants to say. Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. So, verse 16 gives us the first message. And this is from Joel. The, the minor prophet, the Old Testament prophet, whose theme is the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And we can read it together. Um, uh, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, after reading that, you might notice there is a lot of things mentioned there that are certainly not happening in Acts 2. We're not seeing the sun darkened, and we're not seeing all of those things. The only thing we are seeing is this part, I will, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You could maybe, maybe connect this one. Your sons are prophesying because Peter's about to preach. They're speaking in known languages. Um, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Maybe we could say we could see that. But we're not seeing uh, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun turned into darkness. The moon into blood. We are not seeing that for sure. So what can we conclude from that? It seems to be my leaning on this, is that Peter is not saying that Joel 2 is completely being fulfilled in this event. Obviously not, because it's not being fulfilled. So he's not saying that. Um, Joel speaks of an outpouring on the whole nation of Israel in the last days. This outpouring is not happening on the whole nation of Israel. It's happening to a select few gathered in Jerusalem, not the whole of Israel. That's one distinction. Um, That's very different from what's happening to the disciples on uh, on this day. The one thing that is similar between Joel 2 and what's happening in Acts 2 is with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes unusual or supernatural manifestations. The 120 could say about the wind and the fire, and all could say about men speaking in 
in languages that were not their own, that they didn't learn through education but were gifted by the Spirit in the moment. So Peter is saying here, no, they are not drunk. This is not natural. This cannot be explained naturally. You should have recognized that something spiritual, something supernatural is happening because even Joel predicted when he spoke about the coming of the Lord that there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and with that outpouring will come supernatural things. So, Joel's prophecy is associated with the coming of the Messiah. Of course, he was rejected and things will not be fully realized in that prophecy until his second coming. You'll note, In verse 20, it says, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, if we had um, an, an end times timeline, we would say that the church age now runs until the rapture of the church. It's followed by a seven year tribulation period on the earth, which ends with the second coming of Christ. The first coming at the beginning of the church age, the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. The the tribulation period, countless prophecies in the Old Testament refer to that time of judgment as the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, which is mentioned here in Joel's prophecy, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That is the now postponed time of judgment at the end of the church age. So, um, these are the, the rest of the prophecies in Joel will be realized and fully fulfilled, but not till the end of the tribulation period um, in the context of that uh, day. So then he gets to his second address. He mentions prophecy, the Joel, Joel's prophecy, and then chapter verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, Peter now, first of all, he is explaining that something supernatural is happening, the Spirit is coming, it is connected to the coming of the Lord, and now he goes, the second part, bringing in the clear gospel, that Christ who was crucified was the Messiah. That's the next part of his message. A man attested by God to you by miracles, This may remind us of what Nicodemus says in John 3. He says, and remember, he was one of the leaders of the Jews at the time, and he said, we, we know you are a man come from God because no man can do the things that you do. So it was known that Jesus was doing miracles, and there were some who who rejected him even despite that, and others who, um, the remnant, always a remnant that believed on him as the Messiah. In John 5.36, Jesus himself said, The works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So here Peter says, This man is attested by God to you by miracles. He was here for three years. And you, probably many of these, had seen those miracles because through those three years, Jesus even came to Jerusalem for some of the feasts. And He did many of the miracles for that purpose because there were so many in Jerusalem at the time that would have seen it. And then verse 23, he says, Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So he shows them, it's an amazing verse, Acts 2.23, that there was the predeterminate plan or purpose of God. He's saying Jesus went to the cross, but it was in the plan of God. It was even prophesied. It was foretold. It was part of God's projected timeline that he would have to go to the cross. All, even all the sacrifices, of course, themselves point into that. And then he says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he would be held by it, by death. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. He was raised, again prophesied. Remember when Paul sets out in 1 Corinthians 15 on that amazing resurrection chapter, he starts off by saying the gospel that was preached, that you have received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures means all of the shadows, types, pictures, and prophecies that pointed to the death 
and the resurrection of Christ. Notice he also says there was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And you might say, on the third day? Where is the prophecy that says the third day? Where is it in the Old Testament indicated that Christ Christ would rise on the third day? It's a good question. Let's come back to that. So, this is a central part of the message, of course, the resurrection, as it will be in the next chapter, chapter 3, and Paul's first message in Acts 13, and on and on. The message of the early church and the message of the church today, the central point, of course, the death, burial, and the resurrection is the central part of the, of the message, our message, is the gospel. Um, and then he opens up Psalm 16 to them in an incredible way, in a way that perhaps had never been considered before because this had not easily been uh, applied to the Messiah. It was was, uh, written by and applied primarily to David, but but, uh, Peter here shows that it has um, a secondary or a fuller fulfillment actually in the Messiah. And he makes this clear application here. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, and again he's quoting Psalm 16, uh, concerning him, and of course the context here, concerning Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So here David was speaking of the Messiah, according to Peter. Excuse me. Verse 26, Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. My flesh also will rest in hope. Verse 27. For you will not leave my soul in hell or Hades. This is the Greek for Sheol. It was understood to be a place for the departed souls of the Old Testament. um, Both the saved and the unsaved at the time. In in Luke 16... um, uh, and also the thief on the cross in Luke 23, to, today you will be with me in paradise, or Abraham's bosom is also recognized to be that place. The rich man and Lazarus, were, one was in each uh, different parts of uh, Hades, part for the, the, uns, the, the unsaved dead and part for the saved dead. And um, Ephesians 4 tells us, that when Jesus died, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Just as he said, if you require a sign, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be in the, in the center of the earth for three days. And it's understood and it's explained in Ephesians 4 that he descended and led, captive, led, led captivity captive or, or brought the captives into freedom, bringing Those who were saved, held in Hades, finally, because of a finished work sacrifice that he'd accomplished, was able to take them with him uh, to heaven. Verse 27 says, Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now this is very insightful. Not see corruption. Why would the Holy One, speaking of Christ, why would his body not see corruption? Because he would be raised because he would be risen. Before corruption would take hold of the body in the ground, he would be risen. There's a verse, I think it's in Leviticus 19, speaking of the sacrifice. It says that the sacrifice could not be eaten on the fourth day. It was an abomination. Even there, there's little indication that the the sacrifice that all the sacrifices pointed to, that was Christ, laid in the grave, would have to rise again on the third day. Again, according to the scriptures. Um, verse 28, you have, made me, you have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then he gets to the third address. We see again another beginning here. Men and brethren. Uh, This is the last address. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, those of you who have been to Israel, you you know that there is uh, um, a celebrated site for the tomb of David. There's a big question mark over it. But certainly on this day of the disciples, it was known. The tomb of David was known. And here Peter says, listen, we have David's tomb. His body is in the grave. His body did see corruption. He's just 
making his point that much clearer that, um, that the psalm, his holy one not seeing corruption, was a verse speaking of the resurrection. So verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, speaking of David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. Again, he's saying that David's prophecy there in Acts 16 looks to the resurrection saying that he would raise up the Messiah to sit on the throne according to the Davidic covenant. Um, he, David, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, of which all are witnesses. So it's incredible. We see here in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the incorporation and an application of these Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, Peter is able to take it and directly open it up in a way that they had never heard before, ever. It was applied to the resurrected Messiah, which he names here as Jesus Christ. Incredible. So David here, a prophet for seeing the resurrection. So here, um, Peter spells it out. David was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. And guess what? Before there's a resurrection, what do you have to have? A death. David was alluding to the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. Verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And that reminds us of the key verse, Acts 1.8, when, when the when the Holy Spirit, Jesus predicting what would happen in this chapter. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will be witnesses unto me. And that's exactly what is happening, exactly what Peter is saying. We are witnesses. So Peter has laid out proof that Jesus is the Messiah. In his life, in his miracles, that he was attested to by the miracles he performed. In his death, that was certainly fulfilled on the cross, and then in his resurrection. But he, and now he drives home one last proof of the resurrection and the ascension, and that, of course, is the Holy Spirit coming. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Here he's answering their question when they said, what is happening? When they're hearing the languages, what is happening? And here Peter answers it. Christ died, buried, resurrected, ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent this spirit which we now are experiencing. This was the promise. This is, this is the answer to the question. So beautiful. Um, this is what you now see and hear. Uh, Luke 3.17 we remember the Holy Spirit um, descended on Christ for his public ministry. And now the Holy Spirit is descending on Christ's body for the beginning of the public ministry of the church, the mission of the church, which is the heartbeat of the book of Acts. Uh, Luke 4.18, right after Christ's baptism, uh, let's say a little bit about that. Remember, um, Christ was... Baptized by John, the dove descended, Luke 3.17. The voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The dove descended upon him. And then he goes, it says that the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in the next chapter, Luke 4, what do we read? The Holy Spirit, by the whole power of the Holy Spirit, he came to Nazareth. Nazareth, he went into the synagogue. He found the place in the scriptures, Isaiah 61, and he reads these words. And every eye was fastened on him, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel and set the captives free, etc. So the Spirit came upon him. He was always the anointed one, which is what the Messiah means, Christos, the anointed one. He was always the anointed one, the Spirit of God being with him, but, uh, but there was a definite mark for the beginning of his public ministry. And um, he was with the Old Testament saints, but now there is something new happening. The church age has begun. And there's an insightful verse which we've mentioned before, but I'd love to refer to it now also. 
John 7, um, where Jesus said, um, for you that believe out of the innermo- your innermost being will flow rivers of water. And the next verse says, and he was referring to the Holy Spirit which was not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, let's hit the pause button there for a moment. The Holy Spirit was not yet come. This is John 7, 38, 39. The Holy Spirit was not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus died, buried, resurrected, ascended into glory, then after that 10 days, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, he sent the Holy Spirit who then descended because the Son was now glorified. Amazing to see that. So, Peter says it's not David, but Christ that uh, is being referred to. Verse 34, look, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now he's going into the last of the Old Testament passages. He did Joel 2, Psalm 16, and now Psalm 110. And again, David's writing, and there's a curious verse in there, which now, as New Testament believers, Hebrews 7 opens up to us, speaking of the Melchizedek priesthood, etc. But, but at this point, it was unknown. This is the first connection that's made. And Peter says, David was not speaking of himself, was he? Did David say that he had ascended into heaven? That he was at the right hand of the Lord? No, he was obviously speaking about someone else. And he, again, says that he was prophetically speaking about Christ. Um, David didn't say, the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was the Messiah. He has ascended. He's seated at the right hand. Remember the passage in Philippians chapter 2, which is the beautiful passage about his condescension in taking on the form of a man and a servant, and then he will be exalted, given a name above every name, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess he is Lord. And that's what he's saying here. This Jesus whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. So, his conclusion, verse 36, um, he, he puts a period on the end of that, and what's the response? It's, it's uh, um, verse 37. The people's response after all that he said. Wow, I mean, we, we can only imagine the potency, the anointing that was there at Pentecost when he was preaching, where the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to everything that he is saying. The Holy Spirit is there is conviction, there is searching of hearts, there is a clear voice with everything that Peter is saying behind him. There's another voice with an amen. The Holy Spirit being so powerful with every word. As Peter is, he's received power and now he is a witness of Christ. And what is their response? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What a beautiful question. What shall we do? If this is true, then what is left for us to do? Um, Amazing results. And of course, this was the the desired result to bring them to this question um, and a vulnerable heart before before the Lord. They brought to the point, remember, some of these would have been there shouting in the crowd when Pilate crucified him. Crucify him, crucify him. And now realizing that that Jesus was the one who is crucified, was the Messiah, is resurrected, and then they say, what do we do? And Peter answers the question, verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here the word repent is metanoia. It simply means to change the mind. Um, And it's written, particularly in this verse, it's written to this generation at this time that this generation should repent, change their mind on who they thought Jesus was in now recognizing who he really is, 
the Messiah, they need to change their mind and acknowledge him for who he is. Um, I believe it's incorrect to teach repentance as a condition for salvation. If you do, only in the sense that someone did not believe Christ was their Savior, and now they're changing their mind. But if you connect the idea of repentance, that someone needs to change their lifestyle before they can be saved, that is adding to the gospel of grace. The only condition for salvation is belief. This is one unique exception to that, but definitely the circumstances are here are very unique. What shall we do? This is the generation that crucified Christ, and what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Um, but we don't read that in other places in, 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 the, in, the, gospel, in the book of Acts. Uh, for example, the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe. That's the verb. Believe. So, just a quick footnote. Some people use this verse to teach baptismal regeneration, which simply means you need to be baptized, water baptized, to actually be saved. Um, because they say, look, it says clearly here, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and, uh, sorry, every one of you be baptized, repent and be baptized, sorry. repent and be baptized. So they say you've got to not only repent, but also you must be baptized before you can receive the Holy Spirit. However, of course, that's easily challenged. Uh, it's a very, very weak, weak, uh, weak teaching, but it's easily challenged. Um, because of several other places that are crystal clear that they simply believed and were saved. For example, in Acts 10.44, uh, and that's when, uh, when Peter is preaching again. He's preaching, preaching to Cornelius and those that are gathered. He gets to the gospel, and when he gets to the point in his message, and if you believe, it's like that point he w- his message was interrupted. <laughs> And in that moment, in their heart, there was no altar call or anything, but in their hearts, they believed and the Holy Spirit fell upon them just in that moment of believing. Also, we mentioned the jailer in 1631 of Acts. So, let's move on. Not baptismal regeneration. 239, for the promise, and what promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. Now, um, I can't imagine, well, we know that Peter did not fully understand the, all that he was saying at this point. When he's saying, and to all who are afar off. Remember when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, and he's writing to the Gentiles, and he says, do you remember Acts 2.13, uh, Ephesians 2.13? You who were what? Afar off, who have now been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. You were strangers to the promises of Israel, uh, aliens to the, to the covenants of Israel, to the commonwealth of Israel, right? But now you who are afar off have been brought close. He's talking about the Gentiles being brought into one body with the Jews. So when he's saying... To all who are afar off, God has to do some work in Peter's life before he realizes the gospel goes out to the Gentiles as well. Remember, he does that with the vision in Acts 10 and 11. Uh, We'll get there when we get there. So, um, in verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Again, remember, that particular generation was the generation who had, um, under the leading of the, of the lead, leaders in Judaism at the time, had rejected Christ. It was the generation who would be judged. That judgment was pronounced by Christ on them in Matthew 24 and other places. Um, it was the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a generation in rejecting the Messiah. And uh, so be saved from this perverse generation that this generation have rejected him, but it's not too late, he's saying. Individually, judgment's still going to come. It came in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed under Titus. Judgment will still come physically, but individually you can still be saved. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Quite something. Um, 
3,000 souls. That would have been such a glorious day. Baptisms are such a powerful, uh, visual, symbolic event of the, most, of the greatest thing that can ever happen in someone's life, someone's salvation. And imagine all these baptisms. Imagine the joy and the celebration in the gospel there. I love these words. Those who gladly received his word. Reminds us of Zacchaeus when he came down. It says he gladly received him, received him joyfully, it says. And then the last passage we'll close with today. Sorry, there. Um, let's just read it and then we'll yeah, read it and we'll comment on it. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. These are many things that the early church did. Um, I know that there are things that we can do and try in the church today and there's God lead us and we can try lots of different things. But these are the core um, practices. I forget how many are mentioned. I think I counted them. Anyway, you can count the individual things that were practiced daily and with full hearts of the early church here, ones that would be good for us to, uh, to continue in also. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, a quick comment on that. Of course, there were some in Jerusalem, and in fact, even through Paul's missionary journeys, there was still a great need for the church in Jerusalem. He took offerings for the church in Jerusalem because there were lots of people in need. Many who had come to this feast, and uh, we're speculating a little bit, but many who came to this feast definitely stayed much longer because all those who believe continued, um, and perhaps some of them even decided to join the church in Jerusalem and stay there. And they'd, they'd come from their homes, planning to just come for a feast, and maybe ended up rooting in Jerusalem. They didn't have a house or anything. And they, the other believers, seeing the need, under no obligation, moved with love and grace, deciding to help their fellow brother. To make a doctrine out of this and say that as Christians you should sell things that you have to provide for your brother is completely taking this out of context and, and making it some unhealthy law that's applied to believers. There are certain um, uh, camps in Christianity, particular cults, etc., that have taken this type of thinking where everyone sells all their houses and possessions, move on to one big campus somewhere, and uh, there's something not so healthy about that. That is not what is happening here. There is a need, and they're being moved in the time by the Holy Spirit to provide. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And the last verse, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who would be saved. Now he is building his church, adding daily those that will be saved. And he's been continuing to add daily since Acts 2 up until today. And we hear amazing things in, in our own country and in other countries about um, so many people getting saved every day. So there's a lot of um, desire and emphasis on, on uh, churches to grow and different things we can try, but ultimately we know it's God who gives the increase, it's the Lord who adds people. May he bless our efforts, but it's ultimately, uh, he's, it's, it's, uh, he said, I will build my church. He's the church builder, and uh, may he use us. So let's have a prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, time together in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we pray you'd uh, bless our, our meditations and perhaps further reading and considerations of it this week and uh, reading Acts chapter 3 and on for, for future classes. God, prepare our hearts, teach us, give us handles and understanding on the book of Acts that we will, we will have for the rest of our, our Christian days and walk with you, we pray. And uh, bless us now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you like, if anyone has any questions, uh, we, could, we could take a few questions or comments. Uh, feel free. Is there anyone? Yes, Dave.
So you've got um, the first pilgrimage was Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. That was that was one feast on each day. Although the unleavened bread lasted for a week, but they also they were all and these were single day feasts. So these were on three days. F- Fifty days later was the feast of Pentecost. Pente comes from the Greek word fifty. So fifty days later is Pentecost. But um, when Christ ascended, Christ ascended 40 days after. And when he ascended on 40 days, they waited the, the, the extra 10 days until Pentecost came. And during that time, they waited, they were praying, they chose the, the 12th apostle, etc. They were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. After the Passover, uh, after the Feast of the Passover, 50 days was, uh, was the uh, Feast of Pentecost, yeah. Okay, anyone else? Okay. Okay, that happened today? Okay. Okay, we will pray for that, yes. We will close the prayer. Mexico City.